Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are bringing you the season finale, looking at the film The Truth from Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda. Over the last six episodes, we've been looking at contemporary Asian filmmakers, including Apichitpong Wirasethical from Thailand and Bong Joon-ho from Korea. It's been a good season of films, and today we are closing it out with another wonderful film and Koreeda's first that is not in his native Japanese language. I'm joined again by my friend and fellow film podcaster, Omaya Jones, the programmer of the Arkansas Times film series. Omaya, how are you and what have you been watching? Uh, I'm doing well. I have been watching mostly documentaries lately. So at the time nice. that we're recording this, the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival just ended and i got yes. to go to hot springs and see one thing oh cool in person uh they they like were a drive, through a drive through there through. yeah mm-hmm. right that film was called auto is autolingi and the cakes of versailles and it's a it's wow. a sort of behind the scenes thing where they filmed various uh food people and their prep for one of the met galas that was and the, and the theme for that particular uh, met gala was versailles and so there, you see all this really elaborate food prep and all this wow. research into the history of the food and the time period. And there's just all this historical, historical, um, um, there's this like historical educational component to the film. Mm-hmm. And then, um, other than that, I, I've watched a couple of other documentaries. One was David Byrne's American Utopia, which oh, was directed yeah. by Spike Lee, right? That was just on HBO. It, and it's I finally on HBO caught, now? I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, it premiered uh, at the time of this recording. It premiered last Saturday. I've been meaning to watch that. Okay, wow. Um, and I, I enjoyed it a lot, um, except for a couple of spots where he played songs that were also featured in Stop Making Sense. Hmm. But for the most part, it was really easy to not get lost in trying to compare the two. Yeah. Uh, and then I also watched, finally, The Way I See It. Ah, uh, yes. Which, yeah. Did you watch that on like so, the MSNBC when it aired? Right, so they they aired it on MSNBC commercial free on Friday, I think. Um, and it, I I've sort of like this mixed reaction to it. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, coming like coming at it from both like as a film and uh, like the the form of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but there was the, I don't you know there's like this emotional pool. Um, yeah. So like I like I was somewhat involved in the Obama campaign in 2008 at a local level. I volunteered. I knocked on doors. I was actually a delegate to the national convention. So I got to go to Denver and be a part of that process. And so like there were a lot of these emotions Mm -hmm. that were, that, that um, were just kind of being pulled out of me. um, And like the sense of like pride and, um, Mm -hmm. and getting to like relive that. But there was also just this, uh, this weird sense of, sort of like watching it and knowing where our politics is today and sort of Mm -hmm. like what activism on the ground is like and just seeing how there's this sort of disconnect between, I don't know, um, like what this level of politics from the people who are like insiders versus like people on the ground. Yeah. Um, Meaning like what Pete Sousa's activism is not uh, congruent with that kind of activism, you mean? Like it's a different level or different kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they make a, a great deal of the film the fact that he's using, he's willing to use his voice. Yeah. Um, but the way he uses it are these like snarky mm-hmm. Instagram 
comments, you know? Yeah. And just, and, and, and so it's presented like the idea that's like, this is a, like a, like a, it's a big deal that someone would go on Instagram and, um, make sassy comments, but like day to day, like reality, it doesn't seem like, like it's that big a deal. Yeah. You know? Is it more of just like a, an echo chamber kind of, <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah. Like, like people who like it, of course they like it and people who don't aren't going to yeah. hear it or pay attention. Yeah. I think that's valid. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, yeah, I really, I really liked it. So I saw it at the drive-in at Filmland, and uh, yeah, it is. It was surprisingly emotional. If you told me, you know, a photography documentary was gonna make me cry, I would have been surprised by that. But it definitely did. Um, and some of that is just the disparity, which I think that's what it lays on really thick. Is look how the Obama years were, and look at what we have today, and uh, it, it definitely just makes you miss that. And and yeah, and I think. And they obviously wanted it to come out right before the election to try to sway people. But maybe you're right that it's the same kind of thing that um, people who love Obama, they're going to love this. But people who are, aren't are on, the, are on the other side of things, is this really going to convince anyone? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think it's it's worth watching. Um, yeah. I just like I wonder if it if the film actually has the bite that I that it thinks that it, it wants it to have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked on the level to, I don't want to talk too much about this because I'm actually hoping to do a whole episode on it um, in a few weeks, but um, the, the, just the photography aspect of it, like it was just mm-hmm. fascinating to see like what his job was like. And then the way he talked about trying to capture a story in a, in a still image for someone who's not a photographer, that was really fascinating. Um, I, I'm sure that I don't know. I have a couple of photographer friends. I want them to see it and, and see their take on that, that aspect of it. But uh, I enjoyed that. What have you been watching? (laughs) Yes. um, I was just going to talk about one thing. Well, I I guess I can list a few things. I watched Dick Johnson is dead, which we're going to hopefully discuss in the future as well. Um, I also watched a film called, uh, yeah, I won't go into much detail on Dick Johnson is Dead because that'll be, again, the focus of more discussion. Um, I watched The Assistant, which is a film directed by, uh, looking up her name right now, Kitty Green. And it stars Julia Garner, who I know from uh, Ozark. Um, she's a really great actor. She um, Basically, she plays a, a low-level uh, assistant at a company where like a Harvey Weinstein type of person is the boss. And like it, it pretty clearly kind of uh, mirrors that. Um, but it's it's sort of, it, the style of it is really great. It's kind of really minimal and quiet. And, and so then when the, the heavy things happen, it like really hits hard because it's such an understated kind of a movie. Um, I'm also planning to discuss that one on a later episode. So I'll also hold back some of my thoughts there. Uh, but I do recommend that one. And then the one that I really want to talk about is, uh, have you seen the Watchmen series from last year? Um, I have seen, I would say the last, how many episodes are there? Like uh, nine, I think nine. So I've seen probably the last seven episodes, but not the first two. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> um, so sometimes no when things are on, on TV, like cable or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so I grew up primarily in the '90s. You know, back then mm-hmm. you didn't always watch television in order. Yeah. So uh, I—that's a, a habit that I <laughs> have continued to um, maintain. So you know, I would just watch like it was on. I would watch whatever episode was on. They aired a bunch of episodes back to back to back. I watched a few, and that was kind of how I experienced Watchmen. I do the same thing with movies sometimes. Hmm. 
um, if I turn on HBO and a movie that I want to see is on, I'll watch it from whatever point that I catch it to the end. And then later I'll go back and catch the beginning. Interesting. Wow. That's, uh, that's different from me, <laughs> but that, yeah, again, no judgment. That's really interesting. Uh, how were you familiar? Like, did you ever read the comic of Watchmen or uh, see the, the film from 2008? Uh, I've seen the film. I've read the comic. I actually have on my bookshelf, the absolute edition, Nice. Um, which is like an oversized version. Um, yeah. So I, I've been familiar with Watchmen for a while. My undergrad I, I was in sequential art, which is just oh, a okay, fancy wow. term for comics. Yeah. So I went to, I went to SCAD for that. So, uh, Watchmen, I feel like, is a big part of of being a comic book fan of a certain age. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially if you're an American. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't know that about you. Wow. I read it in college and then saw the film uh, and didn't love the film, which I think is you know probably not unique. But um, yeah, I really like the show a lot. I think um, the way it brings racial issues into the forefront, I did not expect. I mean, I kind of heard that going before I watched it, but. Um, much more than I expected. Like it, it, to give some idea, uh, it, it opens with the Tulsa massacre, which if we actually we can raise some awareness here because the Tulsa massacre was this real event that happened in the twenties that, uh, in Tulsa, there's this really affluent black neighborhood that was decimated, um, by the clan, I think, or just blatantly racist things happening. And that was then covered up for years and only, gained any public attention in the last like 10 years, I think. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting that it decided to just open the show with that and, um, and and depict what that was like. And then, um, having Regina King at the center of the story. And, um, I think that one of the fun things about this too, is how it, um, brings in, in some really surprising ways brings in the history of the show. Because at first it just seems like, this might be a whole separate story. Um, but I think that's some of the fun is how, how it does connect back. So anyway, I really was into it. Um, and yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Did you, did you generally like it? Um, I, I want to go back and watch the first couple episodes. I feel like I have mixed feelings and part of it comes from, I think being a fan of the comic and having mm-hmm. an idea of, there's there's a, there's like a whole convoluted history with the publication history of Watchmen and, and the rights of the, mm. the the characters and the story that had to do, nothing to do with the show and everything to do with like DC Comics and Alan Moore and contracts. Mm. So it's it's kind of boring, but it's hard to like not bring that with you. Sure. That said, that uh, that said, like, the show is interesting in that it does take it doesn't just you know it's not just a straight adaptation. Right? Yeah. They, they, mm-hmm. they play with it, and then listening to one of the writers who won an Emmy for it on Fresh Air talk about the way the writer's room worked where is it named Lindelof? Yes. From lost yeah. and the leftovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like he, he kind of like assembled this writer's room. It's really diverse writer's room, people of color. And then just kind of gave it over to them hmm. to like create this. Right. Cause it, it, it almost is like saying like, you know, this show is a, it's supposed to be about like you guys and your perspective and like letting them hmm. um, kind of cur- just like run with it. Wow. Um, and so delegating a lot of that power, um, and, and I was just thinking, you know, actually like th- picking things up in the middle and watching them is also kind of like if you grew up reading uh, what <laughs> we call floppies, uh, mm, like yeah. single individuals of comics in the 90s. Because, you know, when I was growing up, you could go to like the grocery store and there'd be a, like, a newsstand that had comic books on them. Mm-hmm. And you didn't necessarily start with X-Men number one. You know, like my first issue was probably like 
two sixty something, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and just, just so you just you kind of you you learn to pick up the story in the middle of things and kind of just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it does a lot of like even Watchmen itself, like stories within stories, is kind of a a, a part of the comic and then the film, and, and then they kind of bring that in here too and. Uh, yeah, I, I, but it did. It felt like a Damon Lindelof thing too, especially with the way it, there's some time travel kind of things that um, just really reminded me of some lost episodes. So anyway, I, I I keep saying this, but I may also record an episode about the Watchmen <laughs> show with someone else who's a, a big comic nerd. But I didn't know you were so into it. So wow, there you go. Uh, so I'll recommend Watchmen, which is on HBO, and it won all the Emmys this last year. Oh, and the score. I just want to say too is really great. It's uh Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who I'm a, just a fan of. But okay, that's enough about Watchmen. Let's talk about this week's movie, Hirokazu Koreeda's The Truth. I don't remember. You were just a baby. And you, Daddy? No, I've never been here before. The house looks like a castle. It does. Yes, even though there's a prison just behind it. Vous avez de la visite, je, je, je vais peut-être euh, vous laisser alors. Non, aucune importance. C'est ma fille avec sa petite famille. Ah, elle, elle a épousé cet acteur. Oh, acteur, c'est un bien grand mot. Welcome. All right, let's talk about The Truth. Uh, the Truth is the latest film from Hirokazu Koreeda. came out just last year in 2019, and it's his first that is not in Japanese. Uh, I said in the last episode that it's his first English language film. That's not exactly accurate because I think most of this is probably in French. I don't know, like 75% or something is in French. Um, it tells a story of a mother and daughter who have kind of a strained relationship that might be putting it lightly, very strange relationship. Uh, the mother is a famous actress named Fabienne, uh, played by a real life famous actress, Catherine Deneuve. And the daughter, Lumiere, is played by another big name in French cinema, Juliette Binoche. Uh, we also have Ethan Hawke as Lumiere's American husband, Hank. Um, so Fabienne is kind of in her later years, and she's become a bit uncomfortable in her acting career. She's also incredibly critical of everyone around her narcissistic to the point that i had flashes of our president actually watching her I don't know, the way she would like would have some asides about uh, oh i could have thought of that or i could have done that better i was like oh my gosh narcissism there it is um but she talks about how you know she almost worked the hitchcock um and there's like all these she, she's really big on her own accomplishments i guess um she also there's this uh, a family friend named sarah um, that has passed away uh, before the story happened, but her life and her story sort of hangs over these characters. And there's like a secret that is not initially revealed about um, her story. Uh, and so that's kind of part of it as well. So Fabian has just published a memoir. Uh, that's the main reason everyone is, is gathering um, to kind of celebrate her new book. Um, it's a memoir about her, her life and the things that she, some of the things she does include and some of the things she does not include are causing drama with the family. Um, and she's also shooting a film. So that's a big part of the story. So that's kind of the basic setup. Um, so we discussed last time about shoplifters, how Corrieta considers it sort of his, uh, his, the end of his second era of filmmaking in his career. Um, and so this is his next film. This would represent the beginning of a third era for him. So my question for you, Amaya, is... Um, did you find this significantly different from phase two? Does it feel like a first to you, uh, like something fresh or new, or, or do you feel a lot of carryover from 
previous era uh, of Corieta? What do you think? Yes and no. Yeah. So yes, I think there's a lot of carryover in the fact that it, it, it is about a family. Um, there's a lot of talking, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I watched a video essay where it talked about one of the, the lessons, the recurring lessons from his Corieta's films is that you're able to um, improve upon yourself and your relationships, particularly with your parents through the act of talking, mm-hmm. right? Like talking is its own sort of therapy. Um, where I think it's sort of different is with compared to a lot of the other, of the, of the family focused dramas that creators made, this one was very light and pleasant, even mm. though it deals with some heavy things. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed is the camera work in this film. There's, I think there's more movement, uh, perhaps. Um, and he, he talked about working with the cinematographer, um, who was French for this film and, him basically one insisting on sort of longer takes mm-hmm. um, like Coriata thought that there would be more cutting mm-hmm. uh, than there actually is in the film. Um, anybody talked about sort of like he was talking to doing these longer takes to get more and more of the, uh, the performance and less uh, setups, I guess. He also just talked about how like once he actually got to France uh, mm-hmm. and saw just the living space, it's just much bigger than he's used to in Japan. So you can do mm-hmm. more things with the camera in terms of movement. Wow. Um, and, and I think that in the performances, uh, particularly towards the end, there's a scene where they all dance in the street and he says that that would never happen in Japan. You know? mm. So there's, there's also this sort of fantasy element to the film, uh, I think, uh, or, or at least like this fantastical idea of what maybe Western countries are like, which maybe we'll get into more because mm. there are some things that Coriata has said that I make, that makes me think like, oh, I'm not quite sure he always knows what it's like in, in various other parts of the world, particularly the West. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was going to mention um, the style of it and the camera movement because I think it does. Uh, so, like in Shoplifters, and we kind of talked about last time. So he he's made documentaries in, in the past, and he has sort of a realism style in, in a lot of his films. At least in Shoplifters, that's kind of how I felt about it. And, and like almost like shaky cam is not the right word, but it's it's kind of gritty and down with the people. And this that I think that's there, but it there was also more still shots, I thought too, of like just shots of nature and and different things. And and what you mentioned about sort of the lightness of the story, um, I saw one description of it said it feels like a Coriata film, but it also feels a lot like a French film. And I think maybe that mm-hmm. kind of gets at the same idea that it's um it's it's this kind of it's a family drama but it's yeah it's really light and sweet and pleasant in a way that i think shoplifters has flashes of that but then it gets so heavy at the end that it's um it's just a different kind of feeling i think in that way i think it there are similarities too um so like in shoplifters i always think about the beach scene as kind of the the big sweet moment that uh kind of the, the memorable scene from it and i think there's a little bit of a similar thing and you mentioned it the dancing scene for me is sort of the the sweet family moment that we get here that you know was unexpected in a way and, and kind of um i don't know kind of got out of the dialogue the realm of dialogue and just showed us a a, a moment between a group of people that was really just nice and sweet and i really liked that that part of it um so you mentioned the the fact that it's a family drama like that's that's a create a touchstone um did the family drama element element of this work well for you um, it did. It kind of took me by surprise because I'm not used to him dealing so much with upper class, or like either mm. upper middle class or, or in this case, I, based off 
her home, I would say she's wealthy. Although they yeah. they always mention that it's but there's a prison in the backyard or, or behind yeah or something whatever. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a train within here distance <laughs> and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I'm trying to think back at his filmography, and I don't you know I don't think that he's ever dealt with actors, mm-hmm. or at least not. There are people performing roles, but not you know paid professional yeah. actors mm-hmm. and writers and things. And I think that is a different territory from a lot of, uh, his, his other work. Hmm. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, he was asked about this in, in an interview and he said that he didn't really distinguish between the classes. You know, he thought hmm. that, um, he was, he was, he was being asked about the relationship between the mother and the daughter. Um, and he was just saying that to his, to his mind, they would have some of the same issues as anyone from a lower class or a higher class, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I didn't think about that class difference, but yeah, that absolutely makes a difference to the story. Um, I think the the title of the film is interesting and it kind of the way that plays in the idea of truth and what is truth. Uh, and it it is sort of a story about filmmaking. And like you mentioned, it's about actors. Um, so there's there's a lot of like remembered details and misremembered details. Uh, and there's some focus on um, like subjective experience. Um, she She... Uh, Lumiere, the daughter character, goes into the film studio for the first time in many years. She hasn't been there since she was a kid, I think. And uh, she says it seems different. It's, I think she says it seems bigger or seems smaller. I can't remember. But then her mother says, um, "It's exactly the same. You're you're the thing that's changed about this," uh, which just kind of gets an interesting thing about the passing of time. It made me think about um, a, a movie earlier this year. I'm thinking of ending things. Subjective experience was a, a really big part of that. So I thought that was an interesting connection there. But so the idea of truth uh, is sort of played with a little bit and hinted at in different ways. Um, but the, and then also in the book that she's written, um, there's, for instance, uh, she she writes about sweet mother daughter moments when when uh, Lumiere was a child, and Lumiere reads it and says that's literally never happened. Like you're just doing this to sound good and then also she leaves people out that are really important and it's you know narcissistic and self-serving the whole book is um but then the sort of that idea of truth um and what is truth it, it almost asks like what is truth and i think he kind of ends up hinting about um art and, and film in general or film specifically um sort of like the truth within fiction i guess uh, and, and there's a moment at the end that really plays into that idea that we won't spoil, but it um, just kind of hints at that. And, and I think that the filmmaking part of that comes in as well. So the mother, Fabian, is is making this film um, and she's kind of struggling on the set as she's aging and she feels uh, inadequate next to this young actress who's so talented. And that the story ends up paralleling her own mother-daughter relationship pretty in a way that's not really on the nose. Like I didn't think it was too obvious, but it, it was like clearly that was intended. So I think he's kind of getting at the idea that, you know, there's, there's emotional truth in this fictional sci-fi story that she's filming um, that can really apply to her life. And, and maybe it's sort of a case for film as a, you know, therapeutic tool or something like that, that in the way that um, those emotional truths can resonate. So yeah. What did you think about kind of the idea of truth and, and how it plays into the story? Yeah, you know, whenever I'm watching a movie, I, I, there's a part of me that's always constantly thinking about the title and how it relates. And mm-hmm. I think, um, this like the idea that 
what what the film is really doing as opposed to like trying to offer you a standard or a specific thing of idea as opposed to trying to offer you a definitive version of what is true you know it's playing with these different perceptions right that and perspectives that people have Hmm. um so right so like one one of the running things through the through the film is um with this other character who who died before the movie start Mm -hmm. starts um she was really like the surrogate mother right because she was there for lots of different things and and like she was there for the school plays and things um and lumiere talks about how um you know she played the cowardly lion in wizard of oz Hmm. and her mother wasn't there but then later we found out well her mother claims that she was there right and so it's just these different these dueling perspectives Mm -hmm. um of over what happened um and you know the film doesn't get too heavy Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are a couple of scenes that are kind of tense. Yeah, uh, they have some arguments, but it never gets too, too heavy. You know, it always stays sort of playful um, and has you question things. And there's like there's this more like whimsical element. You know, I was reading this in a, a review, and it never occurred to me to to think. Um. So I'll back up. Sure. <laughs> there's uh the missing grandfather who was the turtle who then mm. when he shows mm-hmm. up the turtle goes and when he leaves the turtle reappears right uh so there's there's this uh fantastical element to the whole film like Corey talked about how um he wanted it to be like a fairy tale like from the from the mm. from the perspective of the child he wanted the film the story of the film to feel like a fairy tale and so you had the grandmother as the witch and then um he started thinking about what other fantastical elements you could have. Hmm. And one of those was like the idea of this animal creature, right. Um, who becomes her grandfather. And then when he disappears, um, you know, the turtle reappears. And so it's not clear. I mean, I, to, it's cl- pretty clear that this movie takes place in the world. And, and, and you know, um, he didn't literally turn into a turtle, Yeah, but from the, from the perspective, from the perspective of the child, um, it's possible mm-hmm. there's there's magic yeah yeah i like that and and that plays into the idea of truth too about you know what's literally true and what's you know what the daughter's believing is there some truth in that that's comforting or fun for her and and maybe a a fictional thing can contain truth there's two different ways you can look at what is true and i think this this movie really wants to play with that idea um another thing that kind of plays with that idea is uh hank's character um he this is ethan hawk he uh he mentions over and over that oh yeah i wasn't there because i was doing a shoot i wasn't there because i was doing a shoot and then we find out later that's not exactly what he was doing i mean we can keep that spoiler free as well but um i think it's it's an interesting dynamic to his character and his character so we maybe we can talk about the performances. His his character's relatively minor in this, uh, but he I really I just really like Ethan Hawke in, in most things that I've seen him in, and I think he's really good in this, playing this actor who, so he he's playing an actor as well, and he kind of um, wants to. Uh, he's not a super successful, I guess, uh, and and Catherine Deneuve's character talks about kind of behind his back that he's not a great actor he's a tv actor or something like that and kind of uh, makes fun of him but they end up kind of connecting over acting and i think that's an interesting dynamic here but um, just generally what did you think of the performances in this uh, i like the I, I like them all um I, I think most interesting to me is is the child performance uh Corey talked about essentially not um scripting or not 
uh, directing the child and having mm-hmm. the actors who work with the child in the scene sort of direct them in the scene, right? Interesting. Um, like, let me see if I can just find a quote. You mentioned a little bit of that in the Q&A that I watched. Just Yeah. So, yeah. So um, this is from Filmmaker Magazine. He's asked about um, directing children. And he says, as you know, I've directed many children, but I never teach them a script. I always just explain the situation to them uh, when we're filming. With Ethan, I explained to him the kind of emotions or reactions I wanted to elicit from Clementine. And then essentially let him kind of screen... Um, let him be a kind of screen doppelganger as a director. I really left it up to him to kind of direct Clementine while acting his own performance, which I think is a really interesting approach to directing children. Um, Yeah. Because there's this adage that you hear that you never want to put children or animals in your script, right? Because there are these two (laughs) things that are sort of unpredictable Mm -hmm. um, and and sort of hard to control. But I think that's an interesting approach um, to having like the on-screen parents essentially be responsible for coaxing the performance out of the out of the child on screen yeah that's really interesting and that 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 makes sense because like that kind of follows with uh what we see in the film because ethan hawk's character is often the one um interacting with her and he's kind of in like fun dad mode for a lot of it (laughs) and it feels like he's not really acting like he's really just playing with these kids. Like he's at the kid's table at a restaurant at one scene and it's just hamming it up. And it just seems like he's having a lot of fun and like reality. And then he's playing with her in the backyard and that kind of thing too. Uh, so yeah, I thought he had a really good performance in this. Um, what about uh, Catherine Deneuve? I mean, we could kind of talk about her legacy a little bit too. Yeah. So um, her character does not really she doesn't really open up you know she's Mm -hmm. uh you know you call her a narcissist i think that kind of fits but uh where i would not compare her to uh (laughs) uh, the current president (laughs) it's just that she seems to obviously very very she's obviously very deliberate Mm. you know about um she's smarter than is that what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) yes yes she's like intentionally like projecting an image right yeah like Mm -hmm. um like she has in her head a very fixed idea of how uh, actors of a certain status are supposed to um, behave and treat other people. And so um, that influences a lot of the way she is much to her detriment. Hmm. Um, and, and there, you know, there are things that maybe she could have gotten away with um, when she was younger and ascendant that she can't now that she is essentially at the end of her career. And I think, you know, um, her her character it's like a version of her although she says mm-hmm. that she's not like that at all and she is very self-conscious apparently about having people mistake the character in the film as mm-hmm. being what she's actually like yeah um but you know she's like this legend of cinema and yeah like there's a movie poster in the film that's that uh i forget what it is in in the truth but it's meant to evoke a film that she did called build the drawer mm-hmm. uh which is uh this really well-known film that she did that also is about sort of fantasy um, and like a woman sort of acting out um, these eternal fantasies of desire and things. Hmm. Um, I think there, there are elements of that that I think are um, that it has that are in, sort of in common with this film. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So she is just a, yeah, kind of a Titan, especially in French cinema. Um I've seen actually sadly few of her things that she's she and, and just French cinema in general is something I've meant to dig way more into. Uh, but yeah, Belle de Jour uh, from Louise Benwell, um, 
Umbrellas of Cherbourg and the Young Girls of Rochefort. Uh, Repulsion is a big one. So yeah, she's she's made a lot of really kind of significant films. Uh, and so yeah, having her in this role, I think is, as you mentioned, like very intentional. In the Q and A that I listened to with Corieta, he said he was literally on a plane and thought, you know, if I could have this actor, this actor, and this actor that would be perfect and that's who we got was uh the three leads in this uh and yeah so she is perfect as this aging actress um that yeah it does it does in a way parallel her real life but uh yeah as you mentioned probably only to a point there uh, but i yeah i think her performance is really good and especially like the scenes of her on set um kind of obviously very uncomfortable and feeling like she has to stick up for herself and that she's uh inadequate in some way like you can feel that compared to the other actors there um but then actually i really like too something towards the end is that again getting at the idea of emotional truth she has a thing that you hear actors say all the time is that oh i should have used that emotion (laughs) in the scene um but and that's that's sort of a signal of growth at the end of it i think um but i think that's a that's a good thing but juliet binoche as well is the as we mentioned is the daughter here also a big deal in French cinema. The last thing I saw her in was um, High Life, the the Claire Denis sci-fi thing with with Robert Pattinson, which I like pretty well. Uh, it's a very different role than this. So it's nice to see her being a nice person again. Uh, but then also in <laughs> uh, Blue from Three Colors Trilogy, um, which I covered on the podcast uh, last season. Uh, that's actually the only things I've seen of her, I think. I'm looking at the... She's in some other things. Dan in Real Life. That's a fun, sweet movie that uh, is less significant than some of these others. But uh, she, she's a big deal in French cinema as well. So it's it's a star-studded cast. But uh, yeah, what's your impression of her in this? Yeah, you know, she was also really instrumental, I guess, in getting uh, Corey to make this film. Uh, oh, yeah, that's I talked right. about having... Um, her sort of pester him to say like you got to make a movie in France um, after Shoplifters and um, but yeah like in, in this film uh, her character is so interesting you know she's she's a writer and I guess she's very good at it because there were a couple of scenes that won't go too much into but she's she writes things mm-hmm. that are very effective yeah um, and she also actually this is this is actually a, a sort of a parallel of other creator movies especially um still walking. Hmm. So like the real quick, the plot of still walking is that uh, a man who's in a relationship with a, with a woman who's widowed, who has a son basically takes her to meet his parents. Hmm. Um, And one of the things that you see is just kind of how quickly old roles are reestablished. Right. So like you Hmm. leave your home, you, you sort of um, redefine who you are. But then, like, you know, you go home and you're around your parents and just, like, you're and fall a kid back again. into that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or, or you're not so much a kid as you are a son, right? Like, yeah. there's a hierarchy that's established. And I feel like when, like, so in the beginning of the, this film, she comes home and there's this pre existing relationship with her mother and she just really quickly slips right back into that, hmm. that, that role wow. you know, um, of those habits. Um, and I, I like, you know, I, I love, like, she, she has her mother's book because the whole, the whole premise of the film is that she comes back because, her mother has released this memoir and uh, she's like just going through it. She stays up all night reading the book and like using these post-it notes to like mark out all the things that she says are, are mm-hmm. not accurate, uh, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say like, you know, she also then um, like immediately because of the way her mother acts, her assistant quits. And so mm-hmm. she uh, also 
easily slips into that role. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like she's, she's asked to do it. She's told to do it essentially. Um, and then it, she, when she does it and it just seems so natural, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, there ends up being an interesting thing where she feels like because of the, the damaged relationship between her and her mother growing up, it kind of held her back from following her own, you know, maybe acting career that she wanted. Uh, and, and then it's also like maybe mom is lying about that. And, and that's another way she's, um, kind of trying to have the upper hand so yeah i think again some things that it's not clear exactly what's true um but yeah the i think the mother-daughter relationship works really well and that that probably is in large part to uh the performances there this film falls into a uh what i call it would be like a subset of films that i love hmm. so i have these different lists on letterboxd um and they're none of them are, are like that in depth but like this is I have this on a on a list called process and they're just mm-hmm. films that depict the filming of a movie. Mm-hmm. So not several movies, you know, it's got to be a movie that is filmed over the course of a film um in some capacity. So like Shadow of the Vampire is on the list. Uh Burden of Dreams, even though it's like, you know, it's a documentary, but it mm-hmm. still it fits. Uh David Mamet State in Maine, eight and a half. Um and so I added this to that list. Pain and Glory is another one that's on the list, mm-hmm. or Day for Night. Um, so just movies that somehow um, feature the process of filmmaking, I yeah. think are really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, is that a public list? Can I share that with people? I don't. Oh, it's a private list, but I can make it public. There's 10 films on the list. Uh, the oddest one and the one that I recommend people seek out if they can. Uh, it's on the Criterion channel. It's Symbio Psycho Taxi Plasm Take One. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. What it's, a title. It's it's the most interesting thing that the premise of the film is that the director, William Greaves, uh, has written a film and he's got three camera crews, one to shoot the actual scene, one to shoot like a making of documentary and a third one that documents the whole thing. So there's these three layers of filming that are happening. And then it's kind of like, wait, what is going on here? Cause they're just, you see these like different groups of actors shooting the same scenes, uh, in central park. Mm. And then like where it gets really interesting is there's this footage that was shot without his knowledge of the crew without him talking about the filming of the movie. And at some point they start, it's all like there's this near mutiny, uh, where they're just like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And so, uh, so they're just sort of trying to just like sort it out amongst themselves. Um, is and, it all yeah, scripted? A, no. It's so it's, it's, <laughs> no. it's none of it scripted. Like it's a documentary no. essentially about the making right. of a film. Wow. Okay. I missed that little detail. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. a, it's a documentary about the making of a making of a make. You know, it's just this weird. <laughs> it's out there. It's great. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I was thinking about um, like Synecdoche, New York, and that's like, they kind of do that with within the theater, but of course that's scripted and meant to be really bizarre. And like, so this is like, what if they did that in real life in a movie? Yeah. Kind of, that sounds fascinating. Yes, I will yeah. definitely link to your list if you're cool with that in the yeah. show notes because that sounds like a fun, uh, fun little list. Well, that is Create as the Truth. Thank you so much, Amaya, for being part of season five. I think it's been a really great season. Looking back at um, Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, and then Cemetery of Splendor, the host. Uh, Snowpiercer, shoplifters, and of course today's the truth. I think all, I think all really great. Do you have? Could you pick a favorite out of those, Omaya? 
if I had to pick one as a favorite, I would probably, oh, I don't know. They're kind of apples and oranges. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it seems like of each pair, I have a favorite. Yeah. Like I still love Cemetery of Splendor, um, The Host, and Shoplifters. Yeah. Um, but man, no, I can't. I don't think I could pick one. Yeah, I don't think I could either. I yeah. th- I think at the most, like, I feel like I learned the most about like another culture would be Cemetery of Splendor, uh, but an Uncle Boon Me as well. But yeah, I do. I think I appreciate Cemetery of Splendor more out of those two. Um, and just such an interesting, fascinating, like the way that sleeping is so involved with that. Uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. But that's not the one that I would just like recommend to just anyone. Whereas the host, I think I can recommend to just about anyone uh, because it is that kind of big blockbuster uh, action, but it's so thoughtful and so um, well crafted, and yeah, that the host is one that I I'm shocked I'd never seen before. It's one of the reasons I want to do this podcast at all is to like give myself accountability to watch more things because I I, oh, I want to watch all these things, but like when do I have the time? And uh, so this helps me to kind of buckle down and do it. And I'm so glad I watched the host, uh, and then Shoplifters. It was my second time seeing it, but. I mean, if I had to name a favorite, it would probably be that. The one that I like think about the most and, and want to return to the most, that is probably the one for me out of out of this bunch. But uh, yeah, so there we go. Season five is a wrap. Thank you again, Omaya. I think it's been really good. It's been uh, great having you with me. No, yeah. Thank you for having me here. It's just been a pleasure. Um, I, I just love the opportunity to revisit some of these films and for some of them just getting a chance to watch them for the first time and making myself sit down to you it was awesome before we go i do want to preview a little bit of season six of the podcast since we are closing out season five today with this discussion season six uh you know what i try to do is sort of art house garage talking about art house indie classic try to hit those different um kind of buckets of filmmaking and foreign cinema, which is what we've been talking about here. Uh, but then what I've done the last couple of years is during award season, trying to kind of do modern films that are significant this year. Uh, and I was thinking, okay, 2020 has been a real crapshoot. Who knows if that we're even going to have award season or what that's going to look like. Uh, but actually it turns out a lot of these award season movies are easier to get to because most of them are streaming. Um, so the plan is, Uh, to be a longer season basically from now until uh, the end of the movie season which is generally speaking the oscars which has been pushed back to april Uh, so that would make it a much longer season but the plan is to try to talk through as many of the kind of big 2020 film titles that uh, that we've had this year so the lineup is not exactly nailed down yet it may not be nailed down week to week but we're going to talk about as as many of this year's kind of big films as we can Um, so i mentioned Dick Johnson is Dead, that's going to be coming up. The Assistant, uh, The Way I See It. I know I'm going to talk about Nomadland um, and hopefully Mank, the uh, David Fincher um, Mankiewicz biopic that's about uh, Citizen Kane and have back my uh, my my guest for the, from the Citizen Kane episode who knows people in the Mankiewicz family, Rance Collins. So that should be a really interesting discussion that's been pushed back to December, I think, because the film... It's going to be released in December now. Uh, so that's the other thing is watching the calendar on this because because of 2020, so many things have been pushed back or pulled or you know canceled entirely. So we'll see. But the plan is to talk about uh, 2020 films 
and kind of look at the best of the year. So I'm really excited to do that. I'm going to have a lot of different guests. Omaya will be back for at least one or two of these um, and, and several other people that I've been able to meet recently in the Arkansas film scene. So yes, I'm excited. That's, that's going to be season six. Are you excited, Omaya? I am super excited. <laughs> right answer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, with that uh, tease out of the way, then I guess we can wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Art House Garage. Uh, if you would like to support the show, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're using. You can also buy a t-shirt or some merch from arthousegaragecom slash shop. We have shirts that say movies are for everyone and one that says watch old movies that's really cool so you can go check those out um, and also you can follow on social media we are at arthouse garage on twitter instagram facebook letterbox uh, you can find us there and uh, if you want to email me directly it's andrew at arthousegaragecom or subscribe to our email newsletter which uh, you can go to arthousegaragecom slash subscribe All right, that will do it for this episode. Thank you so much again for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.